that, I don't think I have any other announcements. So it's good to have my brother back. Welcome. <laughs> uh, he promised me I'd have one hour. You have a full hour. Go ahead. Minus <laughs> commercials. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Our topic today is the Ten Commandments and the issue of the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath or the Seventh Day Sabbath. How many of you believe you keep the Ten Commandments? <laughs> yeah, we need Father Bastian. <laughs> Some of you working on it still a little bit? Who would like to recite oh, the first five commandments for me? Anyone? Okay. Now the Lord your God, you shall have no false gods before me. Okay. And do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. All right, skip the graven image one. <laughs> That's another issue. Go ahead. Remember to keep holy the Lord's day, the Sabbath day. Um, honor your father and mother, and thou shalt not kill. Okay, so you keep those? I tried. <laughs> um, go back to that one on the Sabbath for a second. What did you say? You, you fumbled your words for a second. What was that? Remember to keep holy the Lord's day and the Sabbath day. Keep? Why, oh, that's I'm sorry. Did they again? Remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Right. Or the Sabbath day. Or the Sabbath day. Are they? Are, they, are you I, sure about that part? Yeah. Because you're going to say Sabbath. 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 Issue. How many fulfill the Sabbath? A couple of you? Well, that's good. Did you go to a synagogue? What are the rest of you? Heathens. Heathens. All of you. Heathens. Okay. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 20, where we have the list of the Ten Commandments where they're given. Maybe we can get some clarification on the issue. Make yourself free of an image. Suzanne, skip that one. <laughs> Verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8. Remember the Lord's Day. Is that what you have in your Bible? <laughs> oh, you have something different. Well, so do I. Yours you supposed to have something. I'm not answering <laughs> Can you read for, read for us verse 8? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall... Now wait a minute. What were you reciting to me that you remember? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. When, when 
Poor Susanna. <laughs> I've forgotten her Old Testament. Had any of you else, anyone else, stumbled in a moment there? The Lord's Day? Keep away the Lord's Day? How many people have memorized that commandment? Keep away the Lord's Day. What else did you memorize? Well, somebody didn't go to Sunday school. What else did you memorize? Keep away the Sabbath? How many people have memorized Keep away the Sabbath Day? A couple of you. The rest of you, I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> Making paper airplanes in Sunday school? What's happening? Okay, so don't worry. You're not alone. Uh, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, is that poor Susie has been catechized by a bunch of Sunday keepers who didn't want her to read the text of the Bible and the Bible alone. All right? And it doesn't just include, I say Sunday keepers, so I, don't, I didn't say Catholic, because as you know, the Catholic Church has led many Protestant denominations into this mark of the beast, shall we call it. So, anyone have a Baptist background in here? Protestant background? Baptist? Anything else? Carrie, how did you memorize this commandment? Do you remember? I, I don't remember specifically, but I think it was the Sabbath. Keep away the Sabbath? Yeah. And probably the Lord's Day was thrown in. The Lord's Day. Anyone else? Anyone with Protestant background? Yes? Lutheran. Lutheran. Lord's Day. Lord's Day. Okay, Martin Luther. Alright? You don't get any more Protestant than that. There it is, the heart of it. Okay? Keep away the Lord's Day. So you see this error is not just a Catholic error, but this is an error that Protestantism, for the most part, is not been able to set off itself or debarnacle itself of one of these Catholic hangups. But there are small Protestant groups out there, and some are growing very rapidly. For example, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Seventh-day uh, Baptists, and others. Seventh-day uh, Church of God, and other things. Who have been able to return to the pure faith of the Bible and the Bible alone. You believe in the Bible and the Bible alone, don't you? Mormons? There might be some sad things. Uh, okay. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is the Ten Commandments. And the problem is most of us don't know them. And in fact, most of us haven't studied the Old Testament. So let's look at a couple other verses that might help us understand this. The dilemma that you might find yourself in. Susanna. Genesis chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You might say, well, that's the Sinai Covenant. You know, come on, that's the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Genesis chapter 2. When God created man, this is the creation account, this is in the garden. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Genesis in the Old Testament. Chapter 2. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Anyone mow their lawn last Saturday? <laughs> It's McLean's seventh day. <laughs> so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. The seventh day hallowed it because on it, God rested. You see, this isn't just a, a Jewish Moses Sinai thing. This goes back to the beginning of time. The beginning of creation. This is part of the natural law. God rested on the seventh day. What day is the seventh day? Saturday. Saturday. <laughs> what day is the seventh day? We'll try that again. Saturday. 
What day is the first day of the week? We'll start there. Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week. Huh? I know, we live in America, so Monday seems like the first day of the week. But in the, this is not the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. I remember this. This is like third grade, right? Okay, so Sunday, let's count together. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Remember, right? any language is all working the same. No matter how you count it, the seventh day of the week is Saturday. Okay, good. We're clear on that. And I'm not being a seven day of on that one. I'm trying to make sure you we're all on the same page here. Okay. It's understandable the confusion with modern American capitalism everything we do with material goods. But first day of the week, Sunday. Last day of the week, Saturday. Alright? God worked for seven for six days, and he finished all of his work which he'd done in creation after creating the world in six days. And on the seventh day, that Saturday, he Shabbat. He rested. Sabbath. Okay, he Sabbath. The word in Hebrew, Shabbat, just means to rest. In fact, here in the, in the, you have a verbal form here. And on that day, he, Shabbat, he rested. Okay? All right. Now, <clears throat> you have more trouble when you turn to Exodus chapter 16. Because the references to Sabbath do not appear only in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. But even at the collection of the manna. In Exodus chapter 16, when God brought the people of Israel out of, the, out of Egypt, He said to them, after they were hungry and thirsty, and He gave them quail from heaven and manna in the morning, like dew on the ground. But there was a rule to the collection of the manna. Over Genesis still. <clears throat> Exodus 16, He says, verse 5, On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much. So God makes a provision for them on the sixth day, which is Friday. Friday. The sixth day. It's okay. I don't think I figured this out when I was in high school. Uh, I didn't know the months of the year in order to in high school. I tell you. Sixth day. The sixth day is Friday. Now on Friday, when they go out to collect, it's going to be twice as much. It doesn't mean they're supposed to have a party. It means save some of it because that's the provision for the next day when you're going to rest. You're not going to go out and collect it. So the next day they went out and collected it. Verse 22. So then the story continues and actually then the manna comes. In verse 20, on the sixth day they gathered twice as much, just as Moses had told them they would. And they said, what's this all about? And he said, this is what I told you. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy rest, Shabbat. A holy rest of the Lord to bake, to bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, all that is left over you will keep till the morning. So they laid it till the morning. Moses bathed them. And they, could do, they could do whatever they wanted with it. They could make manna burgers. They could make manna cotton. They could do anything. But what they couldn't do was collect it that day. Okay? Uh, verse 25, Moses said, Eat today, however you want to eat it. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. So that's the Saturday. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. That's Saturday. Saturday morning they went out to mow their lawn. And they came out and they, and they found nothing. And Moses said, I told you. <laughs> 
See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he takes you bread twice, no, two, uh, bread for two days. Remain every man in your house or your place. Verse 30, so the people rest on the seventh day. What do you think about that? <clears throat> the manna story, that's important for you. I mean, Jesus points to the manna in reference to the Eucharist. In John chapter 6. You might say, you might be thinking, well, but that's the Old Testament. How about that, right? This is the Old Testament. Isaiah 60, uh, actually, before we, Exodus 31. Turn me to Exodus 31. <clears throat> Exodus 31, verse 15. This is right before the golden calf. Six days, uh, verse 15, sorry. Exodus chapter 31, verse 15. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day the Sabbath soul rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. They were pretty serious back then. <laughs> Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a temporary covenant. <laughs> Until all the New Testament comes. No. My Bible, which is actually a Catholic edition, says perpetual covenant. You guys like the word perpetual, right? It's Catholic. Perpetual virginity, perpetual adoration, whatever it is, right? Perpetual covenant. What does it mean? Eternal. Forever. Okay? They might say, well, so what? It's still back in the book of Exodus. <laughs> Turn with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. Isaiah prophesied that this would, re would remain even into the New Testament. Isaiah 66, verse 22. Isaiah's right in the middle of your Bible, if you're having trouble finding it. Just open right in the middle. It'll open to Isaiah for you. Isaiah right in the middle. If you're at Jeremiah or Ezekiel, go back. And if you're in the wisdom literature, go forward. I can't tell you what page it is. Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Verse 22. Isaiah speaking here about the new heavens and the new earth, the restoration of the kingdom of God that will come only when the great Messiah appears. And he says in verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your, remain, your name remain. Verse 23, From New moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So you see, Isaiah prophesies even that this is going to remain into the New Testament, the restoration on every Sabbath. Not only Israelites, but all the Gentiles will come Sabbath after Sabbath. Well, okay, but that's the Old Testament still. <laughs> Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We'll see what Jesus was doing. I don't know what you guys do on Saturday, but Jesus wasn't mowing his lawn. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. By the way, has anyone else done the Bible? There's, if anyone wants one, there's extra Bibles. Uh, I already gave them all out. No. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And 
He came to Nazareth, that's Jesus, where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue as was his custom on Sunday. No, on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday. Furthermore, Jesus speaks about the church in the future, even keeping the Sabbath. Turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. <clears throat> verse 7. In disputing with the Pharisees about the meaning of the Sabbath, Jesus proclaims. Chapter 12, verse 7. And if you had known what it means to I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Verse 8, for the Son of Man, that is Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's the Lord's day. Susie. <laughs> the Lord's day. Okay, now furthermore, you say, well, that's, you're still, I mean, that's in the time of Jesus and his ministry. Matthew chapter 24. Speaking about the end times, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, there will be earthquakes and famines in those days. There will be horrible stuff happening, wars, people rising, be just like what you see going on today, the great tribulation. And then he says, if you're on your, on your rooftop, flee to the hills, those in today are in big trouble. And then he says, verse 19, and alas, for those who are a child and for those who give suck in those days. So if you're nursing a baby, you're going to have children, it's going to be really rough. And he says, for uh, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. When you guys move, who, all of you, you think about the last time you put your stuff in a moving truck and move. What day did you do it? Saturday. <laughs> Saturday, right? Okay, so this is the big move, all right? This is the end times. And he says, when you're packing things up and you have to flee from your house and your towns and wherever it's happening, make sure, pray, that it doesn't fall on the Sabbath. Right? Can you imagine if it happened for you, Sunday keepers, on Sunday? You know, I mean, you'd be in the middle of your coffee social or something. So, what would you do? All right, and finally, some references I didn't put in the handout for you. You can just write them on your handout if you want, or we'll look at them and write them out later. Acts chapter 13. You say, well, you're still talking about, now Jesus predicted the future, yeah, but let me see the apostolic church doing it. Oh, that's easy. Acts chapter 13. Is Paul good enough for you? Author of the majority of the New Testament? Acts chapter 13 on Paul's first journey. We hear in verse 14. But they passed on from Paragat and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, not Sunday, they went into the synagogue and sat down. How many of you guys went in the synagogue last Saturday? <laughs> oh, really? Fantastic. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, turn to verse 44. Just a little later, after he's done preaching, look what happens in verse 44. The next Sunday, no, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered together to hear the word of God. Okay. 
we can go on and on. Later on, chapter 16, finish off there. There's not a synagogue in Philippi, there's not enough Jews there. So Paul goes down, verse 12. He goes down in, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13. He remained some days in the city, verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, he went outside of the gate to a river, the riverside where he thought there might be a place of prayer. What do you think about that? In fact, I challenge you now, as Catholics who believe in the Bible, maybe not the Bible alone, but the Bible, do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? Yes. I challenge you, Catholics and Baptists and Lutherans and whoever, other Sunday keepers with the mark of the beast. Yeah. Uh, I challenge you. Where in the Bible, in the Bible alone, does it show that the Sabbath day was transferred from Saturday to Sunday? Where in the Bible, the Bible alone, does it teach that the Lord's day has been moved from Saturday to Sunday? Where is it? Where is it? Nowhere. Well, you might say, well, I don't believe the Bible, the Bible alone. I'm a Catholic. Are there any non anyone that's not a Catholic in here? Okay. Yes. What's your background? Or what church do you go to? Raised Catholic, went through every Christian denomination, and I'm independent, but if I had to be in a box, it would probably be Messianic Jewish. Okay. Messianic Jewish, you, you read the Bible at home? Home church? Well, that and go to synagogue and or Messianic. A Messianic synagogue? Or a... Both. Both. Okay. Same. Your son? Who else? Anyone else? What, what church do you go to? No. You don't go to any church, you just home church. You study home. Okay. All right. So, where in the Bible, and the Bible alone, does it teach us? Catholics, fine. <laughs> you guys don't read the Bible anyway. No work. Carrie? What about tradition? Yeah, what's tradition? What about tradition? Tradition. We all see the movie, right? Yeah. The beginning of a new creation, the first day of the creation with Christ's resurrection, the day that we. Yeah, that's all nice stuff. But, um, yeah, the day Jesus was the first day. Although there's some that are arguing with that. Uh, but, uh, where in the Bible is it teach that this commandment was moved from Saturday to Sunday? Where is it? It's not. In fact, there was a great challenge on the internet a couple of years ago by a Seventh day Adventist. And he put up, every Sunday of us handed me this, this handout. He put up a uh, challenge for a million dollars. <laughs> Anyone he would give a million dollars to who could show him one verse from the Bible, and the Bible alone, not tradition, <laughs> but from the Bible, the Bible alone, that showed that the Saturday Sabbath moved Saturday Sunday. <laughs> he gave up. After a couple of years. And his answer was, not a pope, not a cardinal, not a bishop, not a biblical scholar, not some Protestant Baptist reverend, Billy Graham, no one could show him from the Bible the Bible alone. Where the Saturday day of worship was moved from Saturday to Sunday. Now as Catholics, you might say, I don't believe the Bible alone. Well, but your faith must at least be in accord with what the Bible says. You can't be contradictory to it. And from the Bible, the Bible alone, it seems pretty darn clear that not only the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, we have Sabbath keeping. What do you think about that? Does it make you uncomfortable? We get Catholics, but I don't care. But those non-Catholics among us. 
No, it's you, please. No, it's you, please. Can you kill all the people on the face there because you want to? That's not good. Can you decide what people you're going to move into the promised land and wipe out people in front of them? No. Do you even have that kind of power? No. You're not God. God does a lot of stuff, okay, in the Bible that you can't do and you shouldn't do because you're not God. Right? So from the Bible and the Bible alone, being Bible and the Bible alone, Christians here, what do you know from this verse? That God finished the work after six days and he rested from all the work which he done. And how did it? Okay? Alright. Next passage we looked at. Oh, actually, before we move on from there. In fact, from the Bible and the Bible alone, you have a massive problem. Interpreting the way the seventh day Adventist light to. Verse 15. Man's been given a series of commandments in this story. Back in chapter uh, 1, he was told to be fruitful and multiply. Now in chapter 2, he's given two more commandments. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to till it and keep it. Avad and Shamar. Okay? Now, tillet, avad, is the root in Hebrew. You can translate it as to become a slave, to set yourself in submission to someone else. The nominal form of this root is actually just the word for slave. But in context, to slave yourself to it, that is to service it, take care of it, to till it. Say, take care of the soil. And shamar, to keep it, to guard. This is the language of standing guard. Okay? You're not resting when you're standing guard. And then he's told that he can eat of any tree of the garden, but he cannot eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. From the Bible, the Bible alone, all you can discern up to this point is that man was given a command to work. God is resting. Why? Because man, so you know from the story, the point of the story is, is that man is the, in the, made in the image and likeness of God, therefore he is the son of God, and he's taken over. God has dominion over all the birds and the fish and all that stuff that he created, and he's given it over to man. That's the point of the story. God's done with his job, now he's resting, and his son's taken over. But... Let's not look at it in context, what it really is all about. Let's just read from the Bible and the Bible alone. From the Bible and the Bible alone, all you can interpret is that Adam, if he ceased the following Saturday from working, what would he be doing? Saying. He'd be saying this is the commandment of God. He said, wow, but I mean, look. The Bible and the Bible alone. All right. Now, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16, the man story. Beautiful story in context, but we'll just look at it up on this for a second. Here. So, chapter 16, the man is given. And they're given the law of when they can and cannot gather. And a seven-day Adventist will argue, look, see, here it is. The commandment was given to them all the way back to Genesis. And they probably, while they were enslaved in Egypt, kind of forgot about it, or they couldn't do it because they were slaves, and, you know, the Egyptians probably wouldn't rest on Saturday. So Moses has to remind them about this. Oh gosh, that's great. Where is that in the Bible? No, it's turn your verse for that one. Because that argument is not found in the Bible. What you find in the Bible, and the Bible alone, is that at 
Exodus 16, after they left Egypt, they are given the commandment to rest on the Sabbath. So from the Bible the Bible alone, if you want to be a Bible the Bible Christian, all you can discern from the text is that at this point, the Sabbath was given. You might speculate, well, maybe it was there before. Whoa, I wouldn't be important that kind of stuff into the text. Right? Read what the Bible says. But Abraham was keeping the Sabbath. Oh, yeah? Where? In the Bible, in the Bible alone. Some day investors will argue, well, the, the patriarchs, they were all Sabbath keepers. What happened? They went down to Egypt and they stopped keeping it because they couldn't eventually and they forgot about it and they started worshiping the god Apis and the golden calf and all this other stuff. And eventually they were slaves, they couldn't do it. Yeah, that's, that's a nice story. Where is that in the Bible? Well, actually, you don't want to talk about Abraham for keeping all his statutes, commandments, judgments, yes, it does. So you don't have to dwell on that, but it does say Abraham did it. And oh, by the way, that's. Did what? He kept his statutes, but that's not the Sabbath. That's another thing. It didn't. At that point, they weren't told to keep the Sabbath. In fact, following your line of argument there, let's not get too far off, but following that line of argument, that would mean that Abraham worked continuously. Because the only statute we know that God has given the man up to that point regarding this issue is to work. So hold on to that issue. We'll, we'll deal with this more at the end. All right, so then, Exodus 16. Exodus 20 is the next passage we looked at. Ten Commandments. You guys keep the Ten Commandments? Try. You do, but you don't do it the way a Jew does. Because you're not a Jew, at least in the Old Testament sense. You are a Jew by, by virtue, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, of being baptized into Christ. Colossians chapter 2, you have been circumcised with a circumcision not made in hands. But, how do you keep the Ten Commandments? As Jesus said, love God and your neighbors yourself. And in these two commandments, all the law is fulfilled in the prophets. So, what's confusing for Catholics out in CCD classes and even Baptist Sunday school, the Ten Commandments are used as these little lists of nice moral codes, and it's helpful. You teach kids, they can memorize them. But the Ten Commandments weren't originally designed that way. The Ten Commandments are part of a covenant of a bunch of regulations given at Sinai. So, I don't keep the Sabbath according to the book of Exodus, because I've been baptized into Jesus Christ. We'll deal with that in the New Testament in a second. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. All you can discern from this text, from the Bible and the Bible alone, let's not import anything else into it, is that the Sabbath regulation has been given to man to keep on uh, the collection of the manna, right before they got to Mount Sinai. And now, it's reinstituted again, or restated now, in Exodus chapter 20, as part of a bunch of regulations that are given at Sinai. And they have two choices. You can either guess that, well, gosh, maybe this was all, they were doing this back then and stuff, but even though there's no text to prove that. Or you can read the text within its context, let the Bible speak for itself. It simply says that in Exodus chapter 20, when they got to Sinai, God gave them a bunch of commandments. One of those commandments was that on every Saturday, they would rest. Why did they do this? Well, what the seven-day Adventists will not show you is Deuteronomy chapter 5, because it gives them some difficulty. 
In Exodus chapter 20, you were told that, verse 8, on the sixth day you shall rest from all your work. Verse 11, for six days the Lord your God made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, rest on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blesses that Sabbath day and hallowed it. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, you get a little more information about what's going on. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is a repetition of much of what you read before in the Pentateuch because Moses is just about to die and he can't go in the promised land. And he restates for them a bunch of stuff that had happened before. And so he's restating for them the story of Sinai. And he says in chapter 5 in his restatement of the Sabbath regulation, verse 12, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall work. The rest is what we already read. Verse 15, You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of this with mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Within the narrative of the Bible and the Bible alone, all you can discern and, being honest with the text, is that the Sabbath regulation was given to man from God at the moment before they arrived at Sinai. What just happened behind them chronologically? They just left perpetual slavery. And arriving at Sinai, they are given this symbol as a weekly remembrance of what God has done for them. He has brought them out of Egypt, and once a week they are remembered. Not only once a week, every time they have any kind of great festival is a Sabbath. But once a week they are to remember this. This is what God did. And why weekly? Because God created the earth in seven days. You just got out of slavery. God rested, and you get a rest as well. That's verse 14 real quick. We'll write the 15. Verse 14. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do, you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, or your manservant, or your maidservant, your ox, or your ass, or anything that's cattle, or your servant. Yes? Nor the stranger that is within thy gates, that that manservant, maidservant, may rest. So the Gentiles, Moses left with a mixed multitude, right? Amen, brother. And so all the people, if you go back, he says there's one commandment to the Jew and those who sojourn with you. No, there's more. The Gentiles, in the, well, yeah, but he said there's one Torah for you and the Gentiles that sojourns with you. And so the Gentiles with Moses at this time were also keeping the Shabbat. Amen, brother. I'm with you on that. No, no question about it. They're also doing other things, right? Exodus chapter 18, Exodus chapter 17, right? They couldn't eat blood. They couldn't sacrifice to demons. They couldn't marry within certain degrees of consanguinity. It's all part of the holiness code, right? Right. Kadosh, kadosh. All right. So then, now. The last passage we looked at, Exodus chapter 31. A perpetual covenant. Well, the other day I was in the house and Natalia, my little daughter, broke something. Okay. Natalia, I don't ever want you to set foot in the kitchen again. <laughs> Natalia. You are not ever allowed to lift a cup from the counter without mommy and daddy telling you. Anyone, parents, ever use that kind of language? <laughs> now, Natalia, when she's 30 years old, brings her husband back and the kids. She comes in the house. Dad, I'm thirsty, but remember that law you made? <laughs> Can't do it. Okay? Context, 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 right? 
Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. I'll show you another problem. Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, verse 9, you're given the commandment of circumcision. And, as we heard before, this is not just for Jew, or the Israelite, but this is for even the sojourner, or not the sojourner, for the, um, the slave bought in your house. And so, we find out that this is, verse 13, both he and that is born in your house, he that is bought with your money, shall be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, temporarily until the New Testament comes. Seventh-day Adventists do not hold to circumcision being part of the New Covenant because, of course, we have the rights of Paul. Right? Although they don't actually believe that's inspired. So, if you're going to take Exodus 31 as an eternal commandment because it says perpetual eternal covenant, then also circumcision is a perpetual eternal covenant. And you got a major problem in the New Testament, in particular, Colossians chapter 2, Romans, Galatians, the whole epistles, aside from Luther's misunderstanding of them. Okay, last passage that we looked at in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 23. From new Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, says the Lord. Well, if you read the rest of the book of Isaiah and the rest of the prophets, Isaiah is not telling you that every Sabbath, that is every seventh day, all flesh will gather. Okay? If that's the case, what are they doing the other days? The purpose of this statement in, in Isaiah 66 is he's speaking about a new heaven, a new earth, a restoration that's going to take place. Not like the old covenant, a new one. And in this one, all flesh will gather and worship me forever. That's what the idiom, new moon, new moon, week, week, or Sabbath, Sabbath means. Okay? If the Seventh-day Adventist wants to argue for you that you need to keep the Sabbath here as a Gentile, well, you have a problem with the new moon. Now, I don't know about the Messianic Jews. you guys keep the new moons? Of course. And all the festival periods? Today is the new moon day, and we blew the shofar last night. So Fantastic. Amen. Some of the should become Messianic Jews. So, Actually, the new moon... I got Jesus. All right, so, so, new moon to new moon. What does it mean? New moon to new moon is how you mark the months. Okay? The word new moon basically means a new month. That is, from month to month, Sabbath to Sabbath, or week to week, that is eternally, forever, God will be worshipped. Okay? Otherwise, if, the, if this simply means new moon to new moon, Sabbath to Sabbath, then what are you doing the other days? Okay? Yes? Just real quick. Sure, go ahead. The new moon is a day of holy convocation, so you do come together to yes. worship, and the Sabbath is the day of holy convocation. And actually, if you can tell me one little favor. Before, we have very little time left. Before, yes. you, go out of, before you go out of the text, yep. just write Isaiah 56, maybe verse 6. Isaiah 56, just write it down. We'll deal with it at the end because we've got we're on a very limited schedule. Although I have an extra 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, into the New Testament. Into the New Testament, the passages we looked at. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 16. As it was Jesus' custom, or Yeshua, as it was Jesus' custom, what did he do? He went in on the Sabbath. Hmm. So, you see, this was Jesus' custom. Here's the line of reasoning. So, you see, this is what you should do. Seems logical. Of course, when you take to this logical end, it makes no sense. Where were you baptized? Which time? Oh, any time. Either one. Were you baptized in Jordan? I was baptized as a Catholic with water poured over my head. Where? Catholic Church. What town? Uh, Houston, Texas. Where were you baptized the second time? Uh, in Washington State. Uh, where were you baptized? Where? Norway. Not yet. Okay, we'll work on this one. Anywhere else? Sea of Galilee. Fantastic. You still have a problem, though, Carrie? Uh, Ohio. Oh, bummer. That's a long way. <laughs> You've got the Ohio River, but it ain't the Jordan. Right? <laughs> Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Why weren't you baptized there? It's an important passage in the New Testament. There's no commandment that says you have to be baptized in the Jordan River. No, no, no. Follow the line of argument. Luke chapter 4 says it was Jesus' custom to go in on the Sabbath. So you see? There's a commandment to keep the Sabbath, but not to be baptized in the Jordan. Sorry, I'll be quiet for a There's also a cut. <laughs> How many times did Jesus go to Jerusalem? At least three times a year. Minimum three times, but if he kept the law, which he did, how many times did he go to Jerusalem? Once a year. 33. Actually, more than that. Maybe 99 is the minimum. But on just let's just talk about the three-year ministry. We know from John's Gospel, Jesus went to Jerusalem at least for three Passovers, right? Three years. Well, what you don't know, and John's assuming you know, is that Exodus chapter 23 is the reason why Jesus did that. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 3 gives you the three feasts of the year that every man must appear before the presence of the Lord. Passover, or unleavened bread. Pentecost, or Feast of Weeks. And Sukkot, their tabernacles. Right? You done that? Yeah. Jerusalem? What? You got Jerusalem? Nine times? No, he has. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so you see the problem. This is part of Jesus' custom. It's part of his habit. It's part of even the law. Although going to the Sabbath, going to the synagogue is not part of the law. So, that's part of the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law. And if you want to argue that because Jesus did it, therefore you should do it, he got a lot of problems. First of all, just the outfit I'm wearing. Okay? What kind of shoes I'm wearing. You can go insane with them. Anybody got mixed clothing? Different fibers in there? Not wool and linen. Oh, okay. <laughs> Alright. So then, finally, Acts, the passage we looked at. If you look at everyone's passage, you'll find that the custom that you see Paul doing is the same custom he does everywhere he goes. On the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue. Why? Or Philippi, where was one place of prayer. Because that's where the Jews are on the Sabbath. That's where, if you want to be successful in your preaching, you're going to find them. So the Gentiles were too, that were serving the Almighty. It just, the, those were not Gentiles, those were God-fearers, and they were Gentiles who had accepted the God of Israel. So, the Gentiles, if you want to convert the general pagan worshiping, tree stuff worshiping Gentile, you go to the marketplace any day of the week. But if you want to convert the Jews or the God-fearers, you go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay. And if you read every one of these passages, you'll find what Paul does is it's not his custom to sit down and sing some nice hymns to Yahweh. What you find him doing is arguing. He's preaching the gospel. That was his habit. 
And after the Sabbath, he didn't just sit around and wait in the hotel room until the next Sabbath showed up. He then went to the place to preach to the Gentiles, as was his custom, to begin with the Jews, after he was stoned or cast out of the synagogue, he then went to the Gentiles. Cast the dust from his feet, as he says. So, then, the... Um, uh, let's see. So then, the argument or the question of where in the Bible, in the Bible alone, do you find the custom of the, of the Sabbath, day of worship, being transferred from Saturday to Sunday, is faulty on two counts. First of all, the regulations to the Sabbath in the Old Testament is a day of rest, not a day of worship. Now you might say, well, when you rest, you can worship God. Sure. What you'll find is the Jews, who understood the regulation in the first century, had built little synagogues in their towns, in their neighborhoods. And on that day, the day when they weren't working, was the day they got to get together and listen to a rabbi preach about, the Mo about Moses and the law. Now, when you get to the other point, or the other problem with the question, where in the Bible, the Bible alone do you see this being transferred Again, it's based on a lack of historical knowledge. And they trip you up in the same way. The Sabbath was never transferred from Saturday to Sunday. We didn't transfer things. This got transferred to that or anything from the Old Testament. Things were fulfilled. Things fell away and new things came. If you look at the historical context of the first century, Acts of the Apostles and, and Pauline Epistles being the first evidence for you, you will find... That historically what happened is the early church, being primarily all Jewish, until they converted to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the early church was thoroughly Jewish. And along the way, as Gentiles started to come in, they started to deal with certain issues. What do we have to have them do? What else was, must we make them keep? And so the Gentiles, as they were coming into the church, these are not God-fearers talking about, talking about the next stage, as the Gentiles are coming into the church, the church itself, as an, as an institution, began to change or transform from Sabbath-keeping Jewish Christians, who on the Sabbath would gather, and on the first day of the week, pray together as Christians, and remember the resurrection of Jesus, as soon as was mentioning, and now Gentiles who are coming in, who are only gathering with them on that first day of the week. And so the ratio of numbers, of faces, and the background of the individuals, the members of the church changes and grows, that ratio changes, so you have, for the most part, a change the ratio of Sabbath key. Okay? Now, evidence of that or questions about that. So I'm looking here on the handout for you on paragraph three. Now paragraph four. Christian worship, Christians worship Jesus on Sunday. Not because the old law of the seventh-day Sabbath was moved from Saturday to Sunday, but rather because Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, you know, passages. Further signaling this day, it's a little typo there, should apostrophe, this day's significance is the fact that this is also the day he, he was recognized in the breaking of bread, Luke chapter 24. The day he appeared to them in the upper room and gave them the power for your sins, John chapter 20. And the day he appeared again for the sake of Thomas and for us in John chapter 20, verse 26. The practice of Christians gathering on Sundays alluded to in the New Testament as well. 
In Acts chapter 20, we'll turn to the passage right now. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, all scholars will recognize that it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the morrow. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many uh, lights in the upper room chamber where we were gathered, and a young man named Euphtyches was sitting in the window. He sank in deep sleep, and Paul talked still longer. This has happened to probably some of you. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Was taken for dead. And Paul went down there and said, don't worry, he's okay. So then, in verse uh, 12, they took the lad away, alive. I'm sorry, verse 11. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Until morning. And... Uh, they took the lad up and they were not a little comforted. So what you have here is a reference to Christians gathering as Christians to talk about Jesus on the Saturday evening, okay, first day of the week, that is, according to the Jewish uh, counting of the days, the first day of the week, this is after the sun sets, this is 6 o'clock, where we are in the world, about 6 o'clock on Saturday is the first day of the week now. Sunday begins. And Paul and the Christians gathered together in a vigil service, which is what still is held in many Christian communities. A vigil service. And then he's preaching and preaching and preaching. And it's getting late. They haven't had dinner yet. And one of the guys falls out the window. <laughs> the next morning, he, so he goes down, gets the guy, they go back up. So by now it's probably 12, 1 o'clock in the morning or something. They finally break bread. Paul's finally out of wind. And then the next morning, he takes off and he goes traveling. Okay. Now, what is this a reference to? Does this prove in the Bible, the Bible alone, that Christians were Sunday keepers and they rejected Sabbath? No. But what you do see here is evidence of the early Christian communities gathering on that day. And you might say, well, they might have gathered any other day, too. That's fine. That's fine. Paul says that in Romans. Some guys think one day is important. Some guys think all the days are equal. But as you know, as Catholics, you have your daily mass. The next reference, or the next passage we look at, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the contribution for the saints, and we don't mean St. Francis here, right? Hagioi in Greek, in the New Testament, based on its understanding of Kadosh in the Old Testament with the Septuagint translation, is to be set apart. Okay? Christians were understood to be holy. A Christian was Agios, holy. Kadosh. A man of Israel. He wasn't Kadosh Kadosh. <coughs> that was God. But he was Kadosh. So were the vessels in the temple. Anything that was consecrated or set apart. You're not going to use that cup for Coca-Cola anymore? It's not going to be used in the temple. Right? It's going to be set apart. So Christians, by virtue of their baptism into Christ, are set apart. They are holy to God. 
different from all the rest of creation. So, now concerning the contribution for the saints, that is, for the Christians, in particular, he's talking about those in Judea. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put something aside, stored up that he may prosper, so that contributions not be made, may not be made when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you, uh, whom you accredit by letter to carrying your gift to Jerusalem. And I'd like to go too if I can. So, Corinthians, context. Paul's in Ephesus. This is his third journey. He's in Ephesus. Chloe's people and a few other people arrived from Corinth and said, Paul, things are not so hot in Corinth. You've got to get back there. There's divisions in the community. So Paul scribbles down a letter called 1 Corinthians and sends it off. All right? And one of the things he warns them about is, hey, before I get there, because I'm on my way, make sure you clean some stuff up, because I'm going to be coming and looking for the place to be cleaned up. And at the end of the letter, he says, oh, and by the way, before I get there, make sure you start making collections taking collections up for the poor. And when I get there, I will send it off with a letter, or I myself might bring Jerusalem. Depends on what happens at the point. On the first day of every week, take up your collection. Seven days, will, seven days, best will say, well, that's fine, okay, so they're taking collections up on Sunday. Big deal. Well, when do you take your collections up for the poor? When is a logical time to do it? When everyone's together. When everyone's together. But, you might say, well, what about the Sabbath? On Corinth, by this time, there's very few Jewish Christians left. The church of Corinth is almost thoroughly Gentile. That's why he's having problems with the Passover meal in chapter 11. They don't know what to do with it. So they have a big drinking fest. They're Corinthians. They're Greeks. Right? So, in chapter 16, he tells them, when you, on the first day of every week, gather your things together, and then eventually when I get there, there'll be enough stored up in the parish hall or in the broom closet, and I'll take all that and I'll send it off. Okay? You might say, well, the first day of the week's a logical time to take a collection. That's <laughs> just the reason they just like the first day of the week. <laughs> might, it might be possible. But again, just read the text. What's the logical conclusion? They at their house that says, lay by them in the store. In other words, you put it in storage yourself. It doesn't say they're getting together to do it. It says on the first day of the week you put it together by your by you in store. Right. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up. Yeah. This is house churches. This isn't this isn't everyone, you know. So furthermore, we don't have just the Bible and the Bible alone, because as Christians, no matter what denomination you hold to, whether you're a Messianic Jew, an Anglican, Foreign Baptist, or a house churcher, or whatever you're doing, you are not a Bible and the Bible alone Christian. No matter who you are. Because you must rely on the apostolic tradition to tell you what, belo- what books belong in your Old and New Testament. Okay? So, the early church writings are extremely important. And most Protestants recognize this as well. This isn't just a Catholic hang-up. Early church writings. What were the Christians saying in the early centuries? Right? Might be helpful. People who were there, who knew the apostles, might have a little more authority than me. Grab my NIV Bible out of a drawer in the hotel. So the early church, what did they say about this? The first quote I have here is from the Epistle of Barnabas. 
year. This is on the handout? Of the year. Oh, the epistle of Barnabas has been suggested to be from as early as 70 to as late as 135. So you're talking about the first century. I'm giving you the broadest range of all scholars. There are scholars who would suggest the epistle of Barnabas as early as 70. Someone suggests as late as 135. So you need to hold the early church. Yeah. I just have a quick question about when he said now concerning the collection for the saints, who was he? Why did he use the word saints? My Bible says saints. Yes, the word saint is a reference to the, the Christians. Synonymous with Christian. It doesn't, I was mentioning that for you because Catholics sometimes will think of the word saint as a statue or you know, canonized, you know, St. Francis or something. But the word saint in the New Testament, the holy ones, you are a saint by virtue of your baptism. Even if you go to hell, you will still be a saint. And the proper understand that. You will still be set apart. You will be unique in all creation because you've been baptized in Jesus Christ. Okay? But the word saint, we typically throw it around today and use it in that specific way to refer to someone who made it. No, that's okay. It's fine. But in the Bible, just so you understand the context, what it means. The practice of Christians gathering on Sunday uh, is in the New Testament, and the distinction of the Saturday Sabbath and the Christian day of worship on Sunday is documented such as early Christian writings in the Epistle of Barnabas. Finally, he says, I cannot bear your new, t- your new moons and Sabbaths. You see what he means. It is not the present Sabbaths that are acceptable to me, but the one that I made on that Sabbath. After I have set everything at rest, I will create the beginning of an eighth day, which is the beginning of another world. This is why we spend the eighth day in celebration, the day on which Jesus arose from the dead and after appearing again and ascended to heaven. You might say, well, the epistle of Barnabas, that's not the New Testament. It's not the point. What you have here is a document from the early church of Christians who understood, and his reference to we do this means the custom existed before he wrote the epistle, and it's assumed in the epistle, that the early Christians, at least those who were part of this community of this author, believe that the seventh day of the week was the day of celebration that we gather on, he says, to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. He also speaks of the Sabbath rest of our Lord. Our Lord rested in the Sabbath, fulfilling the Sabbath, and on the seventh day, a new, or on the eighth day, a new creation occurs, which he calls the eighth day. That's how you count. The early fathers like to play with that. Eighth day and first day. Likewise, also Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, wrote, If then those who had lived in antiquated, pra- in antiquated practices came to newness of hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but living in accordance with the Lord's day, on which our life also arose through him. There you see the Lord's day being used among early Christians as a reference to the first day of the week. How can we possibly live without him? And he goes on and on. Finally, the Didache, and the date on that, by the way, Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius wrote this series of letters on his way to death, on his way to his martyrdom. When did he die? Most scholars, Protestant and Catholic, historians, all focus in on 110. But he could have, this could have happened somewhere in about a 20-year range there. Again, you talk about the apostolic period. And Ignatius of Antioch is accepted as an extremely important bishop and historical figure by all of Christendom. The Didache, the long form, Didache is just Greek for teaching. Uh, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles is the full, the full title of this work. When was the Didache written? Again, I give you a range. Earliest possibly, 50. Latest possible, 90. Okay. On the Lord's Day, assemble in common to break bread and offer thanks, but confess your sins 
so your sacrifice may be pure. And you might say, well, so the Lord's Day never could be Sabbath. Could be Saturday. Well, you have to look at it in the context of what we just read in Ignatius and other early Christian writings. The Lord's Day, Kirigake Pimera, is used not only here in Ignatius, but also Irenaeus and a bunch of other apostolic writers to refer to the day when the Lord rose from the dead. That is, his day. Because Lord is used in early Christian writings not as a reference to the Father or Yahweh in the Old Testament, but is used for Jesus. All you have to do is read through Paul's epistles. See that. God the Father and Kyrios Jesus. Real quick. Yes. When the women went to the tomb early Sunday morning, yes. In fact, I think Mark says it was still dark. He was already gone. Mm-hmm. He said he rose on the first day of the week. He was already yeah. gone when they got there. Yeah. Burial shroud folded. Angels sitting there. Amen. He was gone. So it wasn't Sunday morning that he rose. It was before Sunday morning. Oh yeah. But Sunday morning's not the beginning of the day. You should know that's messing at you. Beginning of the day on Sunday starts sunset the night before. So and it, it happened before they got there, right? Yeah. By Easter. So the question is, when was it? And one other thing that was just... It was it's cool. Cool. It's, it's, just yeah. before you take a break, we have a whole question period. Yeah. So okay. if you want to answer it, just go ahead. But yeah. The, 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 three, the, the, the problem with that argument is that Jesus identified himself in Matthew chapter 12 as having been in the tomb or will be in the tomb for three days as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. Okay. Um, if Jesus died on Friday, the only way you can calculate that is to the absolute last period on Sunday morning, or until Sunday morning in the Jewish county. Well, he was also supposed to be in the heart of the earth until the third night. So how do you calculate that from Friday to Sunday morning? In Matthew chapter 12, day and night, day and night is a reference to the days. No, he actually says three days and right, three nights. We'll have question, question, question answer okay. period. So it's just because people do have to go at a certain point. All right. Okay. So, uh, early Christians, we'll, we'll just end with this. Early Christians saw the keeping of the Saturday Sabbath law as irrelevant to salvation. As it was, along with circumcision, part of the law, the old law. Galatians chapter 4, Paul, disgusted with the Galatian Christians as he passed through Galatia, seeing them doing all sorts of things like circumcising and other things, says in chapter 4, verse 10, you observe days, months, seasons, and years. I am afraid I've labored over you in vain. Days, the, the days months, seasons, and years, taken in the context of the Old Testament references to the divisions of time, Numbers 23, Leviticus 23, the rest of the reference I gave you here in the notes, would be a reference to the weekly division, the monthly division, we'll see Colossians, the seasonal division, and the yearly division. Okay? So, that's the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath, the new moon, the seasons, that is the references to the festival cycle, Exodus 23, the period of the Passover, the period of, these are all weekly feasts, the period of the Pentecost, and the period of Sukkot. Okay. Further evidence of that, and Paul goes on, he associates these with circumcision, chapter 5, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free, stand fast therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage 
each of you. I testify again, every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. These are the visual image there for you. Okay. He says later on, in verse 12, I wish those who would unsettle you would mutilate themselves. Circumcision understands mutilation by Paul. God created man perfect and good. Later on, in Colossians, when he's in prison, he says this to the Colossians, hearing about further Judaizing happening. In chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how greatly I strive for you and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged and they are knit together in love, those who do all the riches assured understand the knowledge of God and mystery in Christ. Verse 3, In whom are hid all treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul is fighting two things in Colossae. Gnosticism, the belief that if you have the secret knowledge, part of the Greek uh, myth religions, and Judaizing. Common, two common problems that all scholars point to in the early church. Verse 4, say this, uh, I say this in order that no one may delude you with beguiling speech. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order. Verse 6, Therefore you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so live in Him, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Chapter 1, Paul's referring here, back in chapter 1, to you being baptized in the body of Christ. Verse 8, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy, empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Jehovah's Witnesses have trouble with that. And you have come to the fullness of life in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh and circumcision of Christ, and you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the works of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having canceled the bond which stood against us. That's us too. That means Paul and the Jewish Christians. With its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Festival, right? Three feasts of the year for the Jews, Exodus 23. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Or the monthly cycle, the new moon. Or the weekly cycle, the Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come. For the, the present or the substance or the body belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on self-abasement, worship of angels, taking a stand of visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. It's Jesus. From which the whole body nourished and knit together through it, joint and ligament grow with a growth that is from God. If you, if with Christ you died, the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as you still belong to them? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, 
do not touch, referring to things which all perish as they are, according to human precepts and doctrines. So, Paul's reference to circumcision is in conjunction with his understanding of the weekly Sabbath regulation, the new moon, the festivals, all that stuff. If you think by doing that, you'll be fulfilling some law of Christ that has been assumed from the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll have trouble with Paul. And by the way, you should make note of this, should be aware of this, as Seventh-day Adventists, though they won't publicly state it, but I've had two Seventh-day Adventists, devout Seventh-day Adventists admitted to me, that Paul is not inspired, at least where he contradicts Moses. Because Seventh-day Adventists have an awful lot of trouble with this verse from the Bible and the Bible alone. Because this is the last mention of Sabbath in the Bible. If God wanted to say something to his Christian church, believing in the Bible and the Bible alone, you'd think he'd be a little more clear than this. And he is. Crystal. So, confronting this passage, Seventh-day Adventists will argue, well, the Sabbath here is a reference to the uh, festal cycle. No, you can't do that. Because the cycle or the reference to Sabbath, New Moon, Festival is a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament. A number of examples of that in the Prophets and in Chronicles and in Kings, the weekly, the monthly, and the yearly cycle. If you want to interpret the Sabbath here refers to, well, this is the Sabbath on the feast day. Well, then he just said it twice. Because the feast day is a Sabbath. So, the three cycles of time, weekly, monthly, <coughs> yearly, the expanded version of that, the seasonal, before the yearly, as he mentioned in Galatians. So then, and so the practice of Jewish Christians gathering in local synagogues on the Sabbath with the rest of the local Jewish community began to fade in significance, no doubt speeded along by the excommunication of Christian Jews from their synagogues and the conversion of the Gentiles. So, we'll conclude with that, and any questions afterwards, we'll, we'll deal with it. And there was one question, some of you guys got, someone got in ahead of you. Uh, Susie, or Susie, uh, she had a question about, um, uh, and it's related to the topic in the sense of the Old New Testament, and linguistics. It's extremely important. Why in the wisdom literature, Susie likes to read through the wisdom literature, and she comes across references to wisdom as feminine. Well, most scholars in the tradition of the church, in whatever denomination you're from, interpret those references to lady wisdom in the Old Testament to Jesus. And in fact, you see in the New Testament a number of references to Jesus identified himself as the fulfillment of the wisdom of the Old Testament, in particular in John's Gospel. But, uh, it's a woman. Right? No, it's not. Right? So, as I told Susie, it's simple. Jesus must have been a woman. <laughs> it's a linguistic thing. The problem with why English speakers have trouble with this is in English, we do not have, our English language is not governed by gender, except in the pronoun. In the pronoun, we say he, and you know that means a male figure. You say she, and you know it means she, a feminine figure. But if I say the person, so avoiding the pronoun, the person ran to the car, you'd say, was that a man or a woman? 
right? Because in, in English, our verbs are not governed by gender. And so when you come across passages in the Bible, oftentimes an English speaker, and by the way, this is a, a problem primarily in English, German also, somewhat, on the stage. This is a problem, whereas most other readers of the Bible don't have trouble with this, even if they're reading translations, because gender is common in European languages coming out of the, the Latin root, the Romance languages, Greek, and those coming from that. Oh, just. So in Hebrew, you have two genders, male and female. And the verbs, actually by looking at the verb, for the majority of the forms, you can distinguish whether the subject is masculine or feminine because the verb changes. Okay? So you don't have to ask, was it a guy or a girl that ran into the car? The running tells you everything you know. The, guy, the person was not only running, but it also was a man or a woman. Okay? But furthermore, those genders, remember, in these gender languages, the nouns will be either a, uh, all the nouns are masculine or feminine as well. So hill in Hebrew, Hebea, <coughs> feminine. Har in uh, Hebrew, the word for mountain, is masculine. No difference. It just, and when you come to natural gender, then grammatical gender normally coincides with it. Okay? Now it makes sense to us. So if you talk about a man, right, then the action will be masculine, right? The action will also, the verb will actually be a masculine form. Or you talk about, for example, a cow, well, that's a feminine word in Hebrew. Or a bull, masculine word in Hebrew. Okay? So it's natural gender for us. There's a gender somewhat. We have different names that kind of preserve the sense of the gender there for you. Um, Greek is the same, except it adds another, another gender, and that's neuter. Okay? So Greek has masculine, feminine, and neuter. And Latin, same. All three, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, don't confuse this with natural gender, though oftentimes it will correspond with it. There are there are languages in Africa that have up to something like it's thirteen or sixteen di uh, genders. Okay, it's a grammatical category. But why why use the feminine? In, in Good point. So let's turn to one of those passages, Proverbs chapter eight. That was the one you were thinking about. Yeah. Well, there's so many. Oh, but, there's but that's my favorite. Yeah. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, and in fact, you, before you get there, you're supposed to have read the rest of the, the uh, book. And in Proverbs chapter uh, 1, Solomon begins to speak about wisdom as a woman. Verse 20, chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. So you get the image of a woman coming out of her house and screaming out in the street. And she says, and in the market she raises her voice. And then she goes to the marketplace. Farmer's market. This isn't Walmart. Okay? She goes to the farm and she's screaming there. And what's she saying? On the top of the wall she cries out. So the walls of the city she gets up there and she proclaims. At the entrance of the city gate she speaks. So you can't get away from hearing her. How long, oh foolish or simple ones, will you love being simple? How long these scoffers delight their scoffing fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Um, she goes on. In fact, 
the, the opposite of wisdom is also spoken of as a woman. A woman. In chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 16, you will be saved from the strange woman. If you follow Lady Wisdom. From the, the adventurous, with her smooth words, who forsake the companion of her youth, that is her husband, and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death. So go into Lady Wisdom's house and eat her bread and drink her wine. Don't go into the strange woman's house. Okay, the language here is possible. All right. Chapter 8, you get then similar language. Does not wisdom call, does not understanding raise her voice? Right? Her voice? On the heights beside the way. So it's the same language again. She's proclaiming wherever you go. Verse 11. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you desire. Verse 12. I, wisdom, dwell in prudence. And I, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride the arrogance. She goes on. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me or created me. Depending on your translation there. Kana in the Hebrew. Usually means possessed. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth, when there was no depth I was brought forth, when there was no spring abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before all this stuff happened, I was there with God. And then uh, verse 9 continues this language. Um, chapter 9. Wisdom, remember chapter and verse division weren't originally in the text, I'll kind of blow it for you. Chapter 9, wisdom has built her house, she set up her seven pillars, she has slaughtered her beasts, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table, she has set out her maids to call from the highest place of the towns. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here to him without sin, she says, come eat my bread, drink the wine I have mixed, leave simpleness. And live, walk in the way of insight. So she goes on. And this is just one opinion. Okay? What's going on here? Uh, the uh, the words here in Hebrew, and the word here in Hebrew for wisdom is chakmon. Okay. Chokma is a feminine word. Or chokma. But this continues into the Septuagint with Sophia. Remember the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Jews were using the Palestine even, the Christ. Sophia is a, in Greek, a feminine word. Remember, in these languages, words are either masculine or feminine. Or in Greek, even neuter sometimes. So, Sophia is a feminine word in Greek. So if you're going to translate it, or even use a pronoun in Greek to refer back to it, so just like in English, you say, uh, and John went down to the park and he sat on the bench. You don't keep saying John every time, right? You slip in a pronoun. Greek and Hebrew do the same thing. They throw in pronouns. To say, don't keep repeating the person's name. So, if you're going to use a pronoun to refer to this, then you use a feminine pronoun. Either. So you're saying just because because wisdom is a feminine 
Now yeah, so otherwise if you suddenly oh, switch okay. to a different pronoun oh, here, you have a massive yeah. problem. Okay. Because then it'd be bad Greek. So it's just the word itself is the, the feminine, so you've got to use that in terms of uh, pronouns. And to be grammatically oh. correct. Okay. Same thing happens in Hebrew. Uh, he. He. Don't confuse that with the English word he. It's pronounced he uh, in, in Hebrew. He is the pronoun for she. That's why English speakers have so much trouble. She. So this is she. Who is he? Okay? So we got an English speaker. Who is he? He is she. <laughs> 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 me is, so me, pronounced me, is who? Oh. <laughs> it's like an stuff. It's like an stuff. It's like, yeah. this is, when English speakers come to Hebrew, it's, uh, so anyway, the, the, uh, so it's just a, it's a grammatical thing. And so when Jesus then refers to wisdom as being himself, being fulfilled, what he's saying is, it's through me that all things were created. Because Jesus is the word of God, right? The pro, as the prologue says, mimicking Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. Right? All things were created through him. Why? Because Genesis chapter 1, and God spoke, and he said, why did he on? Let there be light. Or better translated, be light made. But we don't have a third person imperative in English. So be light made. So the through the word, creation happens. Okay, so it's creation by word. And so in the New Testament, the authors have been speaking about this, even in the Old Testament, that the word of God is the wisdom of God. And so it's through the wisdom and the word of God that all things are created. So that's why you get the prologue in the language of Jesus. So Jesus is showing you, saying, look, I am the word of God. I am the wisdom of God. Follow me. I am the fulfillment. I am the Torah. Right? In the Sirach, book of Sirach, chapter 24, I, Torah identifies itself as Lady Wisdom. Right? It's beautiful. It works out like that because, I mean, in, in, he made them, let us create man in our image and likeness, male and female. He created them so we, we've all got a part in God and in his imagery. So it's just beautiful that verbally, you know, we can. Yeah. That's yeah. neat. Amen, Suzanne. <laughs> All right, so, okay, and we're way over time. I'm going to stay here as long as anyone else has questions, but I know people have to go. I will stay here and answer. This one took a little longer than we were hoping. So, um, I'll stay here, answer, talk to anyone, however, however long you want. Okay? Let's finish in prayer. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. In the the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Both now and ever, and through ages of ages. Amen.